This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, uh, good morning church. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Jeff and I'm married to Stacy, and we have a three-month-old named Zoe who we're obsessed with. Um, during the week, one of our greatest highlights is Summerhill GC, so shout out to you guys. Um, this morning, we will be drawing to a close uh, the Dreamer Sermon Series, and perhaps more significantly, we will be thinking and applying the final few chapters of Genesis to our lives. I'm extremely excited for this because I think the last chapter of Genesis, especially, is perhaps some of the richest chunks of text in the whole Bible. It deals with the nature of God, the nature of suffering, the nature of blessings, and how all these things converge in the resolution of Joseph's life and the resolution of the story arc of Genesis. Uh, For those of you who like a bit of structure, we'll be exploring three big questions. Question number one, how should we respond to the reversal of fortunes? Number two, where is our reversal of fortunes? And three, what's God's ultimate reversal of fortunes? But before we answer those questions, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that as we delve deep into your words, that you would give us insight, understanding, and wisdom to correctly treat these important few chapters. I pray that we would all be able to see the beauty and wonder of your plans and how you have and will perfectly execute them for your own glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Well, as a nation and culture, we are captivated by the story of the underdog, whether it be in the sporting field or in life in general. When the guy or girl who is least expected to win or succeed ends up doing so, there is a sense of satisfaction. But equally, we get a deep sense of vindication when the crowd favorite loses in that process, especially if they're arrogant or cocky, or maybe that's just me. I think the root of all of this is that we have a deep human fascination about the reversal of fortunes. A recent example of a reversal of fortunes is Stephen Smith. For those of you who love cricket, in other words, if you're Australian, um, you would know that in March last year, when touring South Africa, Stephen Smith, the captain of the Australian cricket team at the time, admitted to being involved in a ball tampering scandal. This was an utterly scandalous admission. It resulted in him not only being stripped of his captaincy, but he received a 12-month suspension. Fast forward to last month, and Stephen Smith returns to Test Cricket. This time, he returns as a regular player, not as a captain, to represent Australia in the Ashes in England. There is a mountain of pressure, and most people expect Smith's Smith's rustiness to be apparent very quickly. When Steve Smith marched into the pitch the first few times, there was a chorus of boos from the English crowd. Imagine tens of thousands of people booing at you, calling you a cheat, and the whole world expecting you to fail. Well, at the end of the series, he amassed three double centuries, 774 runs with an average of more than 110. For those of you who don't know cricket, this is legendary stuff. This is Don Bradman level stuff. When Steve Smith came out to bat for the last time in the series, he received a standing ovation a reversal of fortunes. Despised, hated, and booed on the way out of the crease the first time, loved, worshipped, and adored 
the last time he came out. Well, this fascination with the reversal of fortunes is not just something we see in the sporting field, but I think the more important question is, how do we respond when there is a reversal of fortunes in our favor? When someone who was in power and wronged you in the past is now vulnerable and you have every opportunity to retaliate. Maybe someone looked down on you or spoke ill of you and now you have the promotion, you have the better life. How do you respond? Well, uh, what do we do when our boyfriend or girlfriend dumps us? We get that revenge body. This is why high school reunions exist, right? It's an opportunity for the nerd who was bullied all the way through high school to show that he is now the alpha male, while the high school jock who's no longer in his prime is working at a dead-end job. Even much of our music, especially uh, rap and hip-hop, uh, is founded on this concept. Listen to Drake on his track, Pancake. I'm not gonna rap this, by the way. He says this, my classmates, they went on to be chartered accountants or work with their parents, but thinking back on how they treated me, my high school reunion might be worth an appearance. Make everybody have to go through security clearance. Tables turn, bridges burn, you live and learn. Imagine being that poor guy that bullied Drake and rocking up to that reunion. Um, in rap and hip-hop culture, it's often a virtue to show that you've now made it. Having come from the hood, you now have all the cars, bling, and that derogatory word that rhymes with snitches. It is a virtue to show that you have started from the bottom and now you're here. It's not, I'm not drawing any moral boundaries on this, but this is just to say that we as a culture are fascinated not just by the reversal of fortunes, but responding in a certain way to a reversal of fortunes, especially when we come out on top. In particular, our response to the reversal of fortunes uh, might be satisfaction or pleasure, like Drake, we might even enjoy gloating over this fact. Well, leading up to Genesis 50, we see that the tables have turned. Fortunes have been reversed. Joseph is too I see, and his brothers are groveling up to Joseph, especially now their father, now that their father, Jacob, is dead. For those of you who haven't heard the background to where we are in Genesis, Joseph's brothers sold him to slavery because A, Jacob, their father, showed favoritism towards Joseph, and B, Joseph had these grand dreams where they will all bow down to him. Well, now, Joseph's dreams have come true. Joseph is head honcho now. Once his brothers had all this power over him, and now Joseph is the real king as the second most powerful man in Egypt. The brothers think that the only reason Joseph has not obliterated them is because of some respect he has for their father. Now that Jacob is dead, they decide to use Joseph's affections for his father as a means of protecting themselves in case Joseph changes his tune and takes revenge. They go up to Joseph and they say something to the effect of, Dad told you not to hurt us. I guess the only person who's more powerful than the king is the king's father. We don't know if that's what Jacob said or if they were just making stuff up out of desperation. What is clear is that they have no other hope but to invoke their father's name. How does Joseph respond to this? How does Joseph respond to this reversal of fortunes? Joseph reconciles with them. Uh, last week, we looked at what forgiveness looks like. Uh, today, we're going to lift the hood 
and see the inner workings of Joseph's, Joseph's heart in this process of reconciliation. We're about to see the foundation for reconciliation or the motivation behind reconciliation. Genesis 50 gives us the most effective and satisfying foundation for reconciliation. Not just when it's easy, but when your whole childhood has been robbed, you have suffered abuse, and you've been subject to a miscarriage of justice. Reconciliation, when you're now the two I see with the ability to rain down justice and revenge with a snap of your fingers against your perpetrators. Well, Joseph makes three profound statements that someone who does not know God cannot possibly make. He makes statements that are founded in the very nature of God. The first thing he says is in verse 19. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? What Joseph is saying is that he is not sitting on God's throne. As much as he has every reason and capacity to punish his brothers for what they had done, he had chosen not to because he he knew his place. And let's be clear here, this is not because Joseph is soft or a wimp, and this is not because Joseph believes in karma, he's not thinking, well, what goes around comes around, the universe will get him one day. And it's not because Joseph doesn't believe in the power of government. This particular statement and question reflects the state of Joseph's heart when all is said and done. This is personal, this is deeply personal. This is what his heart truly feels and thinks at the end of the day. Joseph's withholding of retaliation is because of his underlying belief that only God is judge. What should hold us back from retaliating is not ignoring what someone has done to you or even downplaying the damage they may have caused. It is that ultimately there is a day that every man and woman will face a judge of heaven and earth and we must give an account for our actions. That day may be in history or after human history, but that day will come. And there is no escape for anyone who has done wrong and has not repented. Your abuser, your bully, your persecutor, will face judgment. And this is a marvelous truth. While we might want to look for all of the God-ordained means for this to happen in this life, we can trust that it will take place in its most exhaustive and thorough ways in the next. It is this truth that helps us reconcile now with those who have wronged us most since it puts God in his place and us in ours. There's this story of a a preacher who was arguing with his wife and he got so frustrated at the end and he said, you know, 95% of the women at church would love to be married to me. Uh, To which she replied, I must be part of that 5% then. (laughs) So in our quarrels, squabbles and bickering in marriage, at work and in our friendships, we have to recognize that reconciliation, true reconciliation, cannot happen until we make less of ourselves and more of God in terms of who casts judgment. Too often, when we put ourselves on the throne as judge and the place of God, our relationships devolve further into cycles of conflict and retaliation. The first step for reconciliation is giving up the throne. Joseph acknowledges that only God is judge. 
The second thing he says is in verse 20, he says, um, you intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, these are some of the deepest, most powerful, most restorative words that have ever been spoken. What Joseph is saying that all of his brother's actions, throwing him into a pit and eventually selling him into slavery, followed by all the negative repercussions like being falsely accused of attempted rape, all of it, even though it had negative intentions behind it all, was used by God to accomplish his purposes. One thing to notice here is that he's not detaching his emotions and explaining it away intellectually with some fancy philosophy. In the previous verse, when his brothers beg him for forgiveness, Joseph weeps. We don't know why he weeps. We don't know if it's because he felt that relief you feel when someone who's wronged you greatly finally acknowledges it, or whether it's just because he just felt disappointed that his brothers thought so little of him that they had to use their dead father as a potential shield in case Joseph takes revenge. Whatever the case, you know, Joseph hasn't detached his emotions. He feels it. He cries upon seeing his dead father, and he cries again when his brothers attempt to defend themselves using their dead father. What Joseph is saying here is that God is sovereign. God is not just judge, but he is also sovereign. God's sovereignty, in the sense of how Joseph describes it, is at the very heart of Christianity. As Christians, what we believe is that there is no event in history that is outside of God's control. There is no personal experience, whether good or bad, that happens accidentally. There is no misplaced raindrop, and there is no rebel atom. There is no thought you have thought that is beyond God's plan, and there is no action of yours that surprised God, and there is no word that you have spoken over which God is not king. God's sovereignty means every single thing that happens is happening and will happen has been decreed, ordained, and used by God to accomplish his purposes. Well, there are two questions that instantly arise here. The first is, really? Every minute detail is ordained by God? Is he really in control of something as trivial as a raindrop? Well, think about this. In chapter 37, if the Midianite merchants had not passed by the pit where Joseph had been thrown at just the right time, he might have died or might have been sold off by his brothers to some other group and he may have never ended up in Egypt. In chapter 40, if the cupbearer's REM cycles were all wrong, he might not have had a dream. Then Joseph might never have interpreted that and he might have rotted away in prison. In chapter 41, if the weather patterns did not follow Pharaoh's dreams as interpreted by Joseph, then Joseph would have been proven to be a phony, a fake. We can keep going. If God had not orchestrated every detail, if he wasn't sovereign over everything, Joseph wouldn't be the two I see. All these seemingly trivial and insignificant uh, Things are all part of the domino effect leading up to the point where Joseph ended up. God is sovereign over the big as well as the small. The second question might be, is Joseph saying that God is responsible for climate change and rapes and massacres? Is God responsible for all suffering as well? We have to be very careful here. God never, ever intends evil. As Joseph says, God used all the evil intentions of the brothers and all of these insignificant details 
to accomplish his purposes. The Bible is clear. God is good. He is holy and pure. He never lies or cheats or does anything that is evil. Yet, at the same time, he causes all events, persons, and actions to be. As an author writes a book but is not responsible for the evil actions of the characters, God stands pure and just at all times in his sovereign nature. This is a really hard truth to grasp for me, and I don't think I ever will. We will never know where the horizon between human responsibility and God's sovereignty ultimately meets. But one thing is for sure. Without God's sovereignty, all of your struggles and suffering are meaningless and purposeless. It is a result of stardust and chemicals being configured in the wrong way. There is no reason. There is no rhyme. But if you are suffering today, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whatever it is, God's sovereignty means that there is meaning in your suffering. You might not realize it, but there is a reason for it. At the same time, without human responsibility, we will end up worshiping an evil, malevolent tyrant who's culpable for all the terrible things that are happening in this world. We need to hold both these truths together. This is, that is God's sovereignty and human responsibility, even if we don't fully grasp them, since that's what Joseph does, and that's what the rest of the Bible does. In fact, the very center of history and the very center of our faith is based on holding these truths together. One of the first ever sermons preached after the Holy Spirit is poured out um, was by Peter. He says this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 onwards. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus died and was handed over because of God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The greatest act of God was the plan of giving up his own son. This wasn't an accident, neither was it some whimsical response to save us. Even before creation, God had planned to step down into humanity. He knew we would stuff up and would need saving. God's plan makes Christ's death on the cross the most amazing event in history precisely because it is God's predetermined, premeditated plan to give himself up for us. At the same time, notice Peter does not take away from the human responsibility in Jesus' execution. As much as it is the greatest act of God in giving up Jesus for us, it was the worst evil committed by men to crucify the God of the universe on the cross. Peter says it was the act of wicked men who nailed him to the cross. At the center of our faith is a holding up of both these truths, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And these truths reverberate into every part of human history and into our lives, and it shapes how we think about everything, including suffering. Well, the third sentence that um, Joseph says is in verse 21 onwards. He says, So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph doesn't just think that God is judge or that God is sovereign, but also that God is love. Joseph gives undeserved, unmerited love to not just his brothers, 
but to their families. The very ones who wronged him receive grace and mercy. In 1994, one of the worst genocides of the 20th century took place in the landlocked African nation of Rwanda. Um, Friend against friend, employer against employee, tensions brewed to the point of extreme violence between two ethnic groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis. In the space of 100 days, more than 800,000 men, women, and children were slaughtered as the Hutu militia took up arms against the ethnic Tutsi. Methode, a young Tutsi kid at the time, uh, recounts his experience having seen his family massacred. Because of all that happened to me, all the anger I had, I wanted to become a soldier to seek revenge for my family. Method always lived in fear because of these horrific killings he witnessed as a child. He would have these crazy nightmares and was really bitter with life. He resolved to take revenge. But God's resolution was stronger than his. Method became a Christian. Method took the painful but healing steps towards forgiveness. He discarded the list of people he wanted to kill and instead he chose to forgive. But he just didn't forgive. He did more. Method is now a successful business owner in Rwanda's tourism industry. He made the conscious decision to employ Hutus, people from the very same ethnic group that massacred his family. Many Hutus work for him to this very day. Now, the reason Joseph and Method reconciled with their enemies is because they understood and they realized that God is love. But especially not just love that comes with speech but also with action. You know, when the prodigal son came to the father wanting nothing but forgiveness and perhaps places one of the father's servants, the father runs to him, adorns him with clothes and jewelry and throws him a feast. This echoes the events of Genesis 50. The groveling brothers throw themselves at Joseph's feet and want nothing but to be slaves in verse 18. But Joseph chooses to not only forgive but provides for them and their children, reassures them, and speaks kindly to them. When Jesus was sold out by Judas for silver and abandoned by his friends and rejected by the world, Jesus chose to forgive his enemies. This echoes Joseph's life. Although he is sold for silver by his brothers, Joseph chooses to forgive them. Again and again, what we see in the interaction between Joseph and his brothers are echoes of how God views us and treats us. In his love, God did not just claim to love us with empty words. He came down in the person of Jesus, died for us, and through that has given us everlasting life. In three simple statements, Joseph has recognized that God is judge, God is sovereign, and that God is love. Here we discover something crucial and special. Complete reconciliation cannot come without understanding and and acting according to the nature of God. If we do not believe that God is judge, then our reconciliation becomes retaliation. If we do not believe that God is sovereign, then our reconciliation becomes meaningless and purposeless since our suffering is also meaningless and purposeless. If we do not believe that God is love, then our reconciliation stops with empty words and does not move to active steps of restoration. At the heart of Joseph's response to the reversal of fortunes is not just reconciliation, but reconciliation based on the very nature of God. 
you might be here and thinking, well, this doesn't really apply to me. Uh, I'm already a Christian, or I don't really need to reconcile with anyone. But you might have other questions. You might be single and wanting to be married. You might be jobless or in a job that you dislike, but you might want to be in your dream career. You might want emotional stability, but your mental, mental illness might be too much to bear. You might want peace and comfort, but your life may be filled with mayhem and dissatisfaction. And you might be pleading with God, God, where is my Joseph moment? Where is my started from the bottom moment? God, when are you going to use all the terrible things that have happened to me and turn it into good for my favor, just as you did for Joseph? When are you going to reverse my fortunes? Well, the answer to that is found in Joseph's last words. Um, In Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25, we read, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Here Joseph makes a reference to the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph reminds them that God will keep his promises and that he will come to their aid as promised. And Joseph asks them to take his bones with them. You might be thinking, Moses, what a strange place to end the story. I just want to know how to get rich like Joseph, really. Um, You know, when you look at the plot of any story, there's an introduction, complication, a solution to the complication, then finally the resolution. This might be bringing back uh, HSC English nightmares for some of you but it's necessary. In the story of Genesis, the complication is that men and women are sinful. The solution to that complication is is through the promises made to Abraham by God. He calls Abraham in Genesis 17 and he promises him that his descendants will outnumber the stars and grains of sand. He promises him that his descendants will receive a piece of land as well as the fact that they will be blessed. They were meant to be the beacons of light in this dark world. This is what Joseph is referring to. At the end of Genesis, just because Joseph is dead doesn't mean God's promises are. God will continue to reverse their fortunes. This promise was at least partially fulfilled some 400 years later when Israel are in Egypt and they've grown to some great number and finally they escape out of Egypt to the promised land, Canaan. At the end of Genesis, at the final resolution of Genesis, is Joseph's faith in God's promises. For people living at that time, where you were buried was extremely important. This command by Joseph to take the bones with them to the promised land shows that Joseph trusted in God even in his death, even though the promise would only be fulfilled 400 years later. Well, Thousands of years later, uh, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 11.22, and he speaks of Joseph's faith as a model for our faith. He says this, By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. God gave a specific promise, and Joseph trusted it. Joseph believed 
But it's not really his faith that is in primary focus here. It's really Joseph's faith in God's promises. In Genesis, the reversal of fortunes is not just about Joseph, but the real reversal of fortunes is for God's people as promised to Abraham. To understand this reversal a bit more, we need to go back a few chapters to Genesis 45 and verse 7. Here, Joseph makes himself known to his brothers after toying with them, and he says in verse 7, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph says that the reason why all of this has happened was to preserve his brothers' lives and their descendants. Joseph says that the reason he's been raised up and the reason for all of his suffering and the reason that he's 2IC is for the saving of many lives and especially the saving of his brothers' lives and the descendants' lives. Because at the end of the day, Joseph's reversal of fortunes was not for his benefit, but was in service of God's promises. Let me repeat that again. Joseph's reversal of fortunes was not for his benefit, but was in service of God's promises. Joseph suffered, and Joseph was blessed, so that God's promise to Abraham might be fulfilled. The good news is, if you call yourself a Christian today, you are a child of Abraham. So where is your Joseph moment and where is my Joseph moment? Well, it's right here. God is fulfilling his promises through you right now. It may not look like it, but he is. But he isn't done just yet. But let me be upfront and clear to you. And there's a bit of sadness as I say this. You may never get married. You may never find your dream job you may never find complete relief from illness and afflictions. You may never become prime minister like Joseph. I hope God grants all these things to you, but anyone who promises these things to you in the name of God or the Bible is either misled themselves or lying. What you can be sure about is that your ultimate reversal of fortunes is waiting for you in the new heavens and the new earth where the full arc of the story of God and his people meets its final resolution. There will be no doubt. Just like Joseph, you'll return to being the two I see with God, just as Adam was created to be. You'll one day be healthy and perfect and satisfied. That is the hope we hold on to. Our Joseph, prom- Joseph moment has been promised to us now. And like Joseph, we must believe. In the meantime, all our aches and pains and suffering has meaning and purpose behind it all even though we might not fully work out exactly why until we meet God. Our lives may be easy, our lives may be hard. Whatever the case, God's promises will not fail. If you trust in him, he promises to give you ultimate rest at the end of history when you see him face to face. But we cannot put promises into God's mouth that he never gave. This story is not about us. In fact, it's actually not even about Joseph. We might look at the story of Joseph and may be tempted to conclude that the main character is Joseph, and that's probably true in some sense, but is anything but true in another sense. Before Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, passes away, he sort of summarizes his son's lives and also blesses them. These sort of blessings were very important because they almost function like prophecies for his sons regarding who they will become and what will become of them. 
but his blessing to one of his sons, not Joseph, stands out very clearly in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10. We read, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Jacob blesses Judah and says that he's like a lion, and that the scepter will not depart from him, and that he'll have the ruler's staff, and the nations will obey him. In effect, Jacob is saying that one of Judah's descendants will be a king. And that that king will not just be king over Israel, but over the whole world. Let's take a step back and retrace the steps of God's plan. Why did God make Joseph to IC? So that Joseph could forgive and provide safety for his brothers. Why did Joseph provide safety for his brothers? Because it was part of God's plan and promise to Abraham to bless the world. How was Abraham going to bless the world? Through descendants who would come from him. Who was a descendant that came from him? It was Judah. Why was Judah so important? Because Jesus came through Judah. It's all about Jesus, and it's always been about Jesus. Every single event that God was orchestrating in Joseph's life, as, and as well as his brother's lives, was to bring to fulfillment this ultimate plan, the birth, death, and resurrection of the one and only King, Jesus. Now, at face value, we might think this whole story is about how Joseph got to the top. No, it's actually about how Judah and his life was preserved by Joseph, and more specifically about who would come from Judah, the real king, Jesus. Unlike Joseph, Jesus would live forever. Unlike Joseph, Jesus would not just be the 2IC to a foreign king, but the 2IC to God, since he himself is God. The reversal of fortunes finds its ultimate fulfillment in the arrival of Jesus. The grand narrative of Genesis and this dreamer series we've been going through converges on God's plan to raise up a king who would defeat Satan, sin, and death and reverse the misfortunes brought about by Adam completely. Genesis is all about the reversal of fortunes. Joseph goes from slavery to 2IC. His brothers go from showing no mercy to pleading for mercy. Yet, Joseph is kind even though his brothers had harmed him. In the same way, Jesus descended from heaven so we can ascend to God. Jesus, the innocent, died so that we, the guilty, could live. Jesus suffered misfortune so that our fortunes could be reversed. And that is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we drink the juice and eat of the bread... It is a symbol of the complete fulfillment of God's answer to the question of where is our Joseph moment? Well, it is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for Genesis. We thank you for this Dreamer series. We thank you that In Genesis 50, we see the foundation for reconciliation in how we should respond to a reversal of fortunes through Joseph's life. 
We thank you that as we yearn for this moment where we will be elevated to the point where Joseph was, we can trust and know that that will happen when we see you face to face. And the reason that we will receive this reversal of fortunes is because you, through your son, suffered misfortune for us. Now, as we eat and drink, remind us that it is through your death on the cross that we live. In Jesus' name.